Welcome to Radar for Growth, brought to you by business advisory firm Pitcher Partners. This podcast series talks to the key decision makers behind some of Australia's most successful private and family businesses. I'm Heather Dawson, and in this episode, how a blazing determination to make a difference environmentally created a single extraordinary business, and it all comes down to a simple drinking cup. If you haven't heard of it, though surely you have by now, it's called Keep Cup, the brainchild of young Melbourne entrepreneurs Abigail Forsyth and her brother Jamie. You may even have one in your hand as you listen to this podcast right now. And if you have, you're only one of millions of people around the world who are also using Keep Cups for their coffee hits right this very minute. The story goes like this. Back in the 1990s, Abigail and Jamie ran a successful chain of cafes in Melbourne called Blue Bag. Business was good, but they had a problem that nagged at their environmental conscience, the ever-increasing mountain of disposable cups that would be discarded after just one use. Well, you know what they say about problems creating opportunities. The Forsyths decided to do something about this issue, and so they set about creating Keep Cup, designing appealing, reusable cups that customers would keep and return time and again for refills. These days, Abigail runs the show as Jamie pursues other entrepreneurial plans. And Abigail presents a remarkable example of one person's single-minded ability to turn challenges into opportunities and then leverage those opportunities for expansion into new markets. Keep Cup is all about encouraging behavioural change, but that's not easy. And even her original manufacturers were sceptical, as Abigail told me when I caught up with her at the Keep Cup headquarters in Melbourne's Clifton Hill. She took me back to the start. Was it a huge gamble, I asked, to think that she could drive behavioural change and just get people to stop using disposable cups and start using something else? It was a huge gamble to try and drive behavioural change, but that was what really excited me about it. So we went to buy a product and just sell it in our stores, but couldn't find one that fitted under the group heads, that dosed the coffee correctly, that was easy to use, easy to clean. So we designed it, and then when we went to find manufacturers, we wanted to manufacture locally because it was a sustainability solution. And one fellow said to me, look, this is a crazy idea. It's a cup. What are you thinking? (laughs) And he said, if you can't sell this off the prototype, forget about it because he said, I've got a million dollars worth of tools sitting on the shelf there of better ideas than yours, but people couldn't sell their product. And that really changed the way I thought about it. So when I was thinking about it, it seemed so obvious. We were like, why hasn't someone else done this? And why isn't everyone thinking about this? And when my daughter was born, I read this book, Collapse, by Jared Diamond about the collapse of civilizations, the collapse of societies, looked at Easter Island, look at the Mayans. And often it was cultural things that caused the collapse of societies. That's just like these disposable cups. They're a, a cultural signifier that we're assuming is something we have to have and it's so unnecessary as with a lot of convenience single-use packaging so that's sort of what really inspired me to go well I'd like to be part of that behavior change and convince people to do something else. So from lofty ideals about the need for keep cups how do you then come up with a design that's appealing enough to break habits of a lifetime with takeaway coffee and throwaway cups? I think that the design is very similar to the original idea. So it was that it should replicate the form and function of a disposable cup, 
But my brother always says it's got to be sexy. So the colour, the design, the tactility of it, we had to get right. I took in a piece of paper back in 2007 and it's very similar, but I guess it's what the designers have brought to it is the engineering and the tooling and making it easy to use, easy to clean, making sure the lid doesn't leak, all those things that are sort of hidden but really important. What are they actually made of? We pay a lot of attention to the materials and the products. And one of the things when we designed Keep Cup was it would be made out of single component materials that could be pulled apart to either be recycled or replaced. So you can replace the plug, you can replace the lid, you can replace the band. So the lids are all made out of plastic and there's a lot of hoo-ha about plastic as a material, but in order to get it fitting and not leaking, plastic is an essential material. So the lid is plastic and they're made in Australia and the UK. The band is made of silicon in China. The glass cups are tempered glass, so they are blown in a mould and then they go through a a hot furnace which anneals the surface of the glass so it melts the surface of the glass which makes it tougher. It's like Pyrex so it's much more shock resistant. And then we also have stainless steel which is vacuum insulated so that's moulded again. For such a simple product, it's quite complicated, isn't it? It's super complicated and also the amount of stuff I know about injection moulding and manufacturing, amazing. That's what she knows now. But Abigail was perhaps a little less savvy at the start when it came to her first important presentation with the design, even though she was really proud of it. Yes, so you couldn't take the lid off. There was like a skinny band around it. It was hand-painted and I thought it was terrific. And we called a lot of businesses. I got a call to go down and see the team at NAB, their sustainability team, and my brother said to me, are you even going to put it in a box? So I got a shoebox, put the cup in a shoe shoebox. Now I look back and think, oh my God, what was I thinking? Anyway, I pitched the cup to them and they, with this cup that you couldn't take the lid off or anything, and they bought five and a half thousand. And so that was the start. So that was the start, yeah. So NAB was on board, but how did Abigail then set about persuading other big companies? Because an important part of Keep Cup's success has been to work with corporates who also want their brands to be seen to be doing the right thing with the environment. Keep Cup's timing was right, with growing discussion around climate change, saving the environment, and with mounting public pressure on business to do the right thing. Abigail describes it as bottom-up driven growth. So how much was the climate change debate helping the Keep Cup cause? Well, that's really interesting and I think what's happening with climate change now. So right from the get-go, there were people who went, oh my goodness, I have been thinking about this, thank goodness you've done something about it, or there was immediately a group of people who understood the problem and wanted to do something about it. So the business was always commercially viable and it's just been growing that audience. We always say we're a bottom-up driven organisation, so we're in McDonald's, but we're in McDonald's because customers said, we want Keep Cup. And then big companies go, well, here's a sort of no-brand reusable cup. And they go, no, we want Keep Cup. So it's, it's been that advocacy from individual consumers but also from businesses saying, well, we've got solar on the roof or we're doing these things but if we don't do the right thing internally with our team, there's a disconnect in what we're trying to do in terms of our green program. I think one of the issues with sustainability and the climate change climate movement is that people are often talking to the wrong audience. You can't talk to the deep greens. There's no point in keep cup pitching to people who were truly environmentally woke because they would never been using disposable cups ever. 
So you're pitching to people who are, it's a different audience. And I think that sometimes where the green movement is talking to themselves instead of including bringing other people into the journey. Well, there's a message. Don't preach to the converted, head to new markets. Abigail was winning the hearts and minds of the public and big business. But what about all those cafes selling coffee to millions of people? Abigail says there was resistance at the start from grumpy baristas to fussy customers who were too cool for school. But then again, it just takes one enlightened business owner to make a difference. There's a great story in Sydney where I was at a design market and a woman said to me, oh, look, I'd really love to drink out of this cup, but I drink Campos coffee and they're way too cool for reusable cups. And I was furious. What are you talking about? It's silly. And then the next week, Will Young, the owner of Campos, called up and said, I've been looking for a product like this for 10 years. I'm so wrapped it's made in Australia. I want to buy 10,000. So he changed what was cool in coffee overnight. So the coolest roaster in 2009 bought 10,000 and it changed the business. And thousands of cafe owners and baristas followed suit in Australia and internationally so that now a fill or refill of coffee into a keep cup has become the norm. We've spoken already about the design of the cups and the complicated materials they're made up of. But in this world of counterfeiters and intellectual property theft, I asked Abigail how difficult it's been to protect the design of keep cup and preserve its good name. Pretty difficult. Yeah, it's been difficult to protect the design and the IP because you've got counterfeiters Often we're dealing with facilities managers in organisations, particularly in Europe, so they are just looking for the cheapest price and don't really understand that in order to get behaviour change and get people involved, it's not about the cheapest product. It's often about all those brand values and things we're doing that come with it that engage people. The counterfeiters are bad because people come to our customer service and say, my cup leaks, and it turns out it's not even our cup. So there's that, and that, I guess, promotes a bit of lethargy around that reuse movement. And then there's competitors, which are good. They're expanding our marketplace. They're providing different alternatives for the way people want to reuse and making reuse normal, which has always been the aim. It's an expensive business protecting IP. But despite such challenges, KeepCup has grown and grown around Australia and around the world. So I asked Abigail, actually, where are you? So we're in about 65 countries. We've got an office in LA and a warehouse in LA, an office in the UK, a warehouse in the UK, and we manufacture in the UK as well. Do you know how many keep cups you've sold? Yes. <laughs> how many have you sold? Oh, we've probably sold over 10 million. Wow. Yeah. Where are the cups manufactured? So they're manufactured in Australia. And in the UK, the plastic parts Australia and the UK, and we, we manufacture in the UK to reduce our footprint. And because the UK consumer would prefer a locally made product. And then the glass, the steel and the silicon are all made in China and they're the only places we can find to make them. So one city in China pretty much makes every single stainless steel bottle or vessel you will encounter in the world. Amazing stuff. But I was curious to know about the cultural differences that could apply when selling overseas and whether different countries brought different challenges in embracing the Keep Cup concept. Yeah, I mean, I guess, interestingly, different cultures have different attitudes to material. So in Europe, they're like, we get it. We get why you've used plastic. It's recyclable. It's lightweight. It's easy to wash, easy to clean. In America, they're like, ooh, plastic. If we want something quality, we would choose stainless steel. So it's different. And I think the other interesting thing is around who's responsible is another great question that differs culturally. So in Australia, 
we're very much about individual responsibility and we can see from our government that they've got their hands off the wheel in terms of setting a vision and direction that businesses can plan for, whereas in the UK they're much more advanced in their circular economy thinking about how systems and processes must change to support individual behaviour. KeepCup is a truly international company with strong brand recognition. But my next question to Abigail was about keeping up the momentum when it comes to growing the business. I mean, growing is hard for any business, but how hard has it been for KeepCup? Well, it turns out for a company like Abigail's, growth presents all sorts of dilemmas. Growth is a very difficult issue for a business like KeepCup, which is ultimately trying to put itself out of business. And our team have some difficult conversations now. Do we incentivise them by what they're selling? Or when the customer comes and says, I want to buy a thousand of these to give them away, we're like, hmm, we don't want you to do that because we know people have a lot of them. So yeah, I guess for us, it's about finding new markets and finding new occasions for where people are using a disposable cup and could use something else. What have been the most effective marketing campaigns that you've run? People say, how did you grow the business? And I think it's the same as you go back to the Dutch traders in 17, whatever they were. It's the same way that businesses have always grown. It's word of mouth. So we went to a lot of trade shows. We spoke to a lot of people. Like it's telling the story. And if you tell your story well enough, then when you go into a cafe and someone says, what's that? You'll be able to say why you're using a keep cup. And so it sort of grows from there. So I would really say, I once met a guy at a trade show and I was explaining to him how you have the cup and it's in your hand and you tell the story and da, da, da. And he's like, yes, it's called brand in hand. And I was like, yeah, that's right. He was from Coke. They know all about brand in hand. So if you're walking along, you're already advertising the product. Will you continue to expand globally? We've just launched our stainless steel keep cup and we've got a couple of other products that start to extend us beyond just a cup that it will be coming at the end of the year. We've been in the US since 2013. Our focus is stainless steel is a bid for that market. So that's where we're really sort of focusing our energies at the moment. From growing by word of mouth or brand in hand to strategies around global expansion, I was keen to know if there have been any big turning points for the business or pivotal moments, as we call them on this podcast, that also contributed to Keep Cup's tremendous growth. Have there been, I asked? Yes, there's been a couple. So in 2017, ABC produced War on Waste with Craig Rucastle, and that doubled the business overnight. So he did that show. He came through Melbourne with a tram full of disposable cups and said that's how many Melburnians use every day. And it just awaken people to the issue and the problem of waste. So that was instrumental and so we sort of got through that six months and then on the 1st of January 2018 the UK governments produced a report that said that disposable cups were not recyclable and they were a massive problem and if they couldn't be recycled by 2022 they would be banned. It was called the Latte Levy and they recommended that people charge extra for disposable cups so again that was a massive boost to the business. And so it is. From its own determined efforts to TV programs to government initiatives, Keep Cup has grown and grown. Abigail Forsyth carries the weight of responsibility for the company on her shoulders. Her strength of character and her resolve to make an environmental impact on the world has truly paid off. But that doesn't mean life has been easy. So what, I asked Abigail, were the setbacks and challenges of leading this business? Yeah, I mean, for me, they've always been around the relentless pace of decision making. So one decision after another, you solve one problem and another one pops up. So it's just 
preserving your own capacity to keep dealing with those issues and what your life looks like as a consequence. And then your people, they make you and break you. That's the thing I'm most proud about and the thing that's best about, the thing I love most about coming to work. But also when there's issues around people, they're the things that keep you up at night and make you question yourself and your abilities the most, I would say. And also how we market has been different to how other companies traditionally market. We don't want to, for example, be following you around the internet, retargeting you with, do you want to buy a keep cup? That sort of goes against what we believe in as a business. So it's walking that line and I'm very clear about what my ethics are, but then as Keep Cup grows beyond me as an organisation, what does that mean? Do I need to let more views come in? That's a delicate balance. For a long time, all decisions probably came to me and for my own sanity, I need to delegate those decisions down. So it's then about creating a really robust culture and a great team that those decisions get made in a good way. I wondered if perhaps Abigail missed sharing the weight of responsibility with her brother Jamie, who, after all, started with her on this whole keep cup journey. What was her view about that? Jamie and I were in business together for 17 years and now he's doing returner, so he's looking at more a loan scheme for cups and bowls. So I think we've both enjoyed being the master of our own destiny and running it the way we would like to run it, but at the same time it's pretty lonely And I think we've both missed the camaraderie of having a laugh together and having those conversations. So it's bittersweet. But being master of your own destiny, of course, means bearing responsibility for the risks you take, if you're prepared to take them. And that's a question I asked Abigail as she stands solo at the head of Keep Cup. Do you take risks, Abigail? And should you? (laughs) In life? In life? I think life, life itself's a risky proposition, isn't it? You've got to be brave in this world just to keep going. Well, there's an all-encompassing answer. So, as we draw to the end of this podcast episode, what I asked have been the biggest lessons that Abigail Forsyth has learned in running Keep Cup. I think the biggest lesson is that fine line between getting good advice, understanding that no one will care or think about the business more than you will, And so what does that mean in relation to the people wanting to give you advice? So it's about finding the right people who can help you, but not handing over the reins because no one's going to care about it like you. But now that she's brought the company to where it is today, where to from here for this determined, highly principled entrepreneur? Because having won the hard battles involved in bringing about behavioural change, what challenges are left? I think one of the challenges for me personally in the last couple of years has been for however long it was keep cup versus the disposable cup. So we were like a pirate ship going out against the disposable cup. People weren't aware that it wasn't recyclable. They weren't aware of the sheer volume of waste that is caused by single-use items. But that awareness is growing and now we're becoming just one of a group of competitors who are selling reusable cups, which is sort of not that exciting for me. So now I think for me, it's about, well, what does a good business look like? What does a good business in 2020 look like? And how does it look after its people? How does it talk to the market? What does it do to get to carbon neutral? And how does it behave? And trying to be an exemplar of what that should be. Because I think people are aware of the climate emergency we're in and people want to know what to do. And there's a real gap in people knowing what to do next and how to help. I don't imagine you're ever going to lose your zeal to... Keep thumping the message, though, (laughs) Abigail. Yeah, it's difficult. So, final, final question. Will you still be pushing the message forcefully in 10 years' time? 
probably. I guess it's who I am in a way. I don't know what I'll be doing, but I'll certainly be speaking up for what I think is the right thing. Thanks, Abigail. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Well said. Well said indeed. Abigail Forsyth, Keep Cup. And that ends this episode of Radar for Growth, brought to you by business advisory firm Pitcher Partners, where we talk to the key decision makers behind some of Australia's most successful private and family businesses. Coming up next, the amazing recipe for success in growing a business based on partnerships, loads of them right across Australia. It's the story of disaster recovery company, the Johns Ling Group and the entrepreneur who has driven the business to an astonishing 25% growth year-on-year for the past 15 years. His name, Scott Didier. We'll hear from Scott next time on his very successful strategies for growth. Until then, I'm Heather Dawson. Thanks for listening. Radar for Growth is brought to you by business advisory firm Pitcher Partners. The podcast is marketed by Wavelength Creative and is produced by Sound Cartel.